Welcome to Carl Chin's Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author, Professor Carl Chin, honours the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising that there were sinners as well as saints. This month, we're going to be finding out about the Welsh of Birmingham and particularly one Welsh family that had a major impact on our city, the Lloyds of Sparkbrook. The Dark Ages, the times of the Staffordshire Horde, and they were turbulent times. Casting their shadow over Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century, they were dark, not so much because of the disappearance of civilization, but because it is so difficult to see into them and understand what happened. Whether it be archaeological or documentary evidence, there is too little evidence that has survived, and that which has done so is often confusing and difficult to interpret. However, what seems likely is that with the ending of Roman imperial authority, a variety of greater or lesser British kingdoms emerged and that those in what would become England fell more or less quickly before the advance of the Angles, Saxons and other Germanic invaders. In the Western Midlands, Welsh stories mention a kingdom called Pengwern, perhaps based on Roxeter, and which may have stretched eastwards to the Birmingham region. Be that as it may, the North Warwickshire and South Staffordshire districts soon fell under the sway of the Anglo-Saxons. The Welsh warriors were either killed or fled westwards with their families, leaving behind them their farming folk who eventually intermingled with the newcomers and took on their language. That means there is little to recall the Welsh who once lived here, apart from a few place names. One of them is the Bar in Bar Beacon and Great Bar and Perry Bar, which means summit or top in Old Welsh. And that's where I'm standing now, on the top of Bar Beacon, with its stunning views below of the Black Country and the Birmingham Plateau, and over in the distance, the Malvern Hills, Clent Hills, and the ridge that runs from Wolverhampton to Quinton, the watershed of England. At 650 feet above sea level, legends say that Bar Beacon was a sacred place to the Druids. And supposedly, in 1588, a great bonfire was put up here. And it was one of a chain of bonfires across England, which would have been lit if the Spanish had invaded at the time of the Armada. Similarly, during the Napoleonic Wars, folk are said to have placed poles, iron, baskets and chains on Bar Beacon, so as to light a great beacon if French troops had landed. Then, in 1887, we do know that a huge bonfire was lit here to celebrate Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee as monarch. It was ventilated by a cross tunnel and chimney and it was doused with 26 gallons of oil as well as with tar and creosote. Outside Birmingham as it is, lying in Walsall, Bar Beacon was bought in 1918 by Colonel Wilkinson of Sutton Coalfield. He presented it to the public in memory of the men of the Royal Warwicks and of the North and South Staffordshire regiments who died in the First World War. The dome on its peak was put up in 1933 in memory of Colonel Wilkinson. And standing here, we should also remember the Welsh who were here before the English and who continued to impact upon Birmingham's history. It's ironic that given the overwhelmingly English nature of the people of Birmingham from at least the 7th century until the later 20th century that one of the most important families in our history was Welsh and that family was the Lloyds of banking fame. 
This family claimed descent from an 11th century King of Duffid, a medieval kingdom in South Wales. From the 1300s, the Lloyds were settled in Dolabrun in Montgomeryshire, hence Dolabrun Road and Montgomery Street in Sparkbrook, on the corner of which is where I'm standing now, and I'm looking across at one of the old factories belonging to the BSA, behind which is the Grand Union Canal and the railway line. Back to the Lloyds. They were prosperous members of the gentry in Wales, but during the religious turmoil of the mid-17th century, Charles Lloyd II joined the Society of Friends, better known as Quakers. As such, he believed that there was something of God in everyone, that the response to injustice was peaceful, non-cooperation, and that the congregation was more important than the minister. These were radical thoughts. In a period of religious intolerance, Quakers suffered for their radical faith. Their meetings were prohibited and they were often arrested for so-called blasphemy or else for refusing to take the oath of allegiance to the king. Like many of his brethren, Charles Lloyd was imprisoned for his Quaker beliefs whilst his cattle were sold and part of his house destroyed. After spending 12 years in prison, the latter part of which was on parole, Charles was released. Still, he continued to be hounded by members of the religious and political establishments in Montgomeryshire. And so, in 1698, he decided to visit his daughter Elizabeth, who had married a wealthy Birmingham Quaker called John Pemberton. During his stay, Charles Lloyd II died. He was buried in the old friend's burial ground in Bull Lane, which led off Monmouth Street and is now part of Colmore Row. In 1851, when this spot disappeared because of the building of the Great Western Railway, the coffin of Lloyd and other Quakers was moved to the Friends' new burial ground in Ball Street. Of course, the Quaker meeting continues on the same site, just by where Lewis's used to be. I'm outside it now, looking towards the Tony Hancock statue in Old Square. Now, Lloyd's son-in-law, John Pemberton, was an ironmaster and financier who laid out Old Square and the streets around it as a desirable location for the wealthy middle class of Birmingham. A prominent and important townsman, his father, grandfather and great-grandfather had all been goldsmiths and moneylenders in what was then called the Rother or the Beast Market. That's the part of the high street leading down towards the bull ring. All three of them bought land with their profits, but John's father, Thomas, had also become an ironmaster, then called an ironmonger. He was one of the earliest followers in the town of George Fox, the founder of the Society of Friends, the Quakers. According to Joseph Hill and R.K. Dent, Pemberton lived in a mansion overlooking the old town at the highest point of Bennett's Hill near to what would become Great Charles Street. Anyway, a year or so after the death of Charles Lloyd, his younger son, Samson I, made Birmingham his home. He took his Christian name from his maternal grandfather, Samson Lort, a descendant of a family that had come to England with William the Conqueror in 1066. Like others who had supported the Norman Duke, they may have been Bretons, as St. Samson was a Welshman who had founded a monastery in Brittany and became a significant figure there. Intriguingly, many Bretons were descended from those Welsh who had fled across the Channel to escape the Anglo-Saxons. Thus, in another quirk of history, Samson Road in Sparkbrook harks back to those who lived in these lands before the coming of the Anglo-Saxons, the English. Samson Lloyd began his working life as a farmer and according to Samuel Lloyd and his history of the family he was attracted to Birmingham not only because his sister had moved there but also because the town was friendly to dissenters people who did not believe in the tenets, the beliefs of the Church of England they were later called nonconformists 
It was fortunate for us that Samson did come here and that he did not follow his uncle Thomas and many other Welsh Quakers in their search for religious freedom by going to William Penn's settlement of Pennsylvania in what would become the United States of America. Birmingham appealed so much because it was not then incorporated as a borough and thus it was exempt from the discriminatory Five Mile Act of Charles II which had forbade dissenting ministers from coming within five miles of a borough. As Samuel declared, Birmingham was then in its infancy and... owed much of its early intellectual eminence and progressive spirit to its not having been a corporate borough. For other superior men, stimulated like Samson Lloyd by the desire for religious liberty, also settled in it. The very atmosphere of the place soon seemed to favour religious liberty and intellectual freedom. Married to Mary Crowley, the daughter of a prominent ironmonger from Stourbridge, Samson moved away from his background as a farmer and into the iron trade. The Quakers of Birmingham were a small, close-knit, mutually supportive and important group of families. Their pacifist beliefs prevented their sons from going into the army or navy, whilst as dissenters they could not become clergymen in the Anglican Church, the established church. With these outlets for their energies closed, Quaker men turned their attentions to business. Characterised by honest dealings, hard work and an avoidance of unnecessary risks, they became highly successful. Samson Lloyd I was no exception. In tolerant Birmingham, he soon found scope for his energies and capital and started up in business as an iron merchant in Edgbaston Street. Edgbaston Street today presents a very different scene from what it would have been like then. Looking along it now, from just below St Martin's in the Bullring and from the corner of Moat Lane, it is flanked to the right by the Bullring Shopping Centre and to the left by the Open Market, the Rag Market and the Indoor Market. With little experience of either manufacturing or trading, he soon became adept at both, building up what would be regarded today as an integrated structure of business. Iron came from a blast furnace in Derbyshire and from forges near Worcester and also from Burton-on-Trent. It was then taken to Lloyd's Slitting Mill at Birmingham, whereby plates of wrought iron could be slit by specialist machinery into rods so as to be sold to nail makers. The first proper plan of Birmingham that we have dates to 1731. It shows Lloyd's slitting and corner mills on the corner of what was then Lower Mill Lane and what would become Bradford Street. Lower Mill Lane is now simply Mill Lane and it runs alongside Digworth Coach Station, which I'm looking across at from the edge of Bradford Street. Lloyd's Mill was in a most prominent position with easy access to the important through route of Digworth and it was powered with water from the nearby River Ray. This mill was described in 1755 by some Londoners who visited the Pembertons. It was... Too curious to pass by without notice. Its use is to prepare iron for making nails. The process is as follows. They take a large iron bar and with a huge pair of shears worked by a water wheel, cut it into lengths of about a foot each. These pieces are put into a furnace and heated red hot, then taken out and put between a couple of steel rollers which draw them to the length of about four feet and the breadth of about three inches. Thence they are immediately put between two other rollers, which, having a number of sharp edges fitting each other like scissors, cut the bar as it passes through into about eight square rods. After the rods are cold, they're tied up in bundles for the nailer's use. Additionally, Lloyd's workers produced bar iron, which was used by smiths across the land to make a wide range of iron goods and steel for the cutlery, blade and edge tool industries. 
Moreover, the Birmingham businessman also acted as an ironmonger, selling the finished goods of Smiths and Nailers to the London markets especially. Importantly, the bond between Lloyd and his brother-in-law, Sir Ambrose Crowley, was essential to both men in the development of their enterprises. Crowley bought rod iron from Lloyd for nailers in the north of England, whilst Crowley's factories in County Durham produced bar steel, which was distributed to the edge tool makers in the Midlands by Lloyd. With no canals then to speed the movement of goods, it was a long journey to and fro Birmingham. The steel was taken by boat from the northeast of London and thence was carried to our town. This expensive movement was made possible by the high value of steel compared to its weight, as opposed to the lower value of iron. Samson I died in 1725. When he had arrived in Birmingham, it is said that he had nothing. This does seem to me unlikely, given his background and his close relationships with wealthy families locally. Still, he may have had only a modest means by comparison with them but through hard work, integrity, and the development of family contacts, especially with other leading Quakers, he transformed his fortunes and became a very wealthy man, leaving 10,000 pounds. His business was passed on to his eldest son, Samson II, who had been apprenticed at a brass wire firm in Bristol, where his father had an agent. The younger Samson drove forward the Lloyd's operations. If his father was the man who had laid the foundations, it was Samson Lloyd II who successfully built upon them and made himself one of the most influential businessmen in the Midlands at an extraordinary time, the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. His first wife was another well-connected Quaker woman, for her father was Richard Parks, an ironmaster from Wensbury, who'd settled in Birmingham, whilst his second wife was the daughter of Nehemiah Champion, a Quaker merchant from Bristol with metallurgical interests. Of their three daughters, Mary married Osgood Hanbury, a Quaker merchant who had an extensive concern in trading with the American colonies. Rachel married David Barclay, another leading Quaker merchant and also a banker. Samson Lloyd II was a leading figure amongst the great names of a dynamic, exciting and sometimes confusing era that changed the world. He was a contemporary of Matthew Bolton, perhaps the most famed industrialist of the age, and he joined with Bolton and others in supporting the cutting of the Birmingham Canal. From its full opening in 1772, this linked the town with the coal and iron deposits in the black country. It was the first of the canals that would soon enable Birmingham's manufacturers to reach the world more easily through readier access to the ports such as London, Bristol and Liverpool. Lloyd was also a pivotal figure in the banking revolution that was another vital feature of the Industrial Revolution by way of providing the finances for the rapid expansion of manufacturing. In 1765, he and his eldest son, Samson III, joined with John Taylor, the Brummage and Bottom King, and his son to found the first real bank in Birmingham, that of Taylor and Lloyd's. Their premises were in Dale End and are remembered today by a blue plaque placed by the Birmingham Civic Society and it says City of Birmingham, site of the banking business of Taylor and Lloyds, predecessors of Lloyds Bank Limited, commenced 3rd of June 1765, a plaque which is just above me as I'm speaking, very close to Marks and Spencers. In an age of figures whose achievements made their mark on the making of the modern world, Samson Lloyd II was one of the most influential. Matthew Bolton, James Watt, William Murdoch and Joseph Priestley may be better known in Birmingham and have statues to commemorate them, but in the years immediately before they came to prominence, Lloyd played a pivotal role in the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. 
Through his business as an iron master, he provided the iron and steel that was so crucial for manufacturers. And then, as the pace of economic change gathered, he provided another impetus through his bank, Taylors and Lloyds, which loaned much of the money to power manufacturing further forward. A wealthy man, from the early 1730s, Samson Lloyd lived at number 18 Park Street. 100 years later, this had become one of the poorest parts of Birmingham, dominated as it was by lodging houses, railway lines, workshops and back-to-back -back houses crammed into what once had been gardens. Indeed, the house of the Lloyds itself had become part of the premises of Henry Shaw, a small-scale nail and chain manufacturer. Shaw's Passage, leading between Park Street and Allison Street, is named after Shaw's company. And standing here today, close as I am to the Bullring Shopping Centre and to the rest of town, this hidden part of our city remains a place that calls out of the past because of its cobblestones and blue brick viaducts. Yet, when Lloyd lived hereabouts, his house was in a pleasant setting. According to his descendant, Samuel, for beyond the garden, the meadows led down with a gentle slope to the River Ray, then flowing with pure water from the Licky Hills, and beyond it was open and well-cultivated country. But now, in 1907, this is all built over, and the neighbourhood has become a busy hive of town life and industry, and the River Ray a dirty stream. Number 18 Park Street still stands, a roomy house now used by a riveter, with all its walls crumbling to decay. Despite this attractive location so close to the town centre, Samson Lloyd decided to move into the country and in 1742 he bought an estate in Sparkbrook. Now of course it's in the inner city, but then it was rural. Owen's farm, which Samson bought, consisted of 56 acres with a farmhouse and outbuildings. It cost £850, a big sum then. But as Birmingham expanded, it gained massively in value, so that just over 100 years later, 40 acres of that estate, including the house and farm buildings, were valued at the incredible sum of £20,000. That would be when a working man would be lucky to earn 50 quid in a year. But back to the 18th century, and three years after purchasing his rural retreat in Sparkbrook, Samson Lloyd had an avenue of elm trees planted in front of the house. That was in 1745. Now think of this, that was the year when Bonnie Prince Charlie, Charles Edward Stuart, led a Jacobite rebellion in the hope of ousting the German Hanoverians and regaining the throne for his family. He failed. Anyway, once the avenue of elm trees was planted, a new house was built. It was called The Farm, and it remains in Farm Park in the middle of Sparkbrook, and I'm sitting on a bench in that park close to the house, looking indeed at the house. Samson's descendants, Samuel, later wrote that... One choice summer arbour, called the Fish House, was placed by the pond, and another was also erected in a more secluded situation, lighted by a window containing blue, green, yellow and purple panes of glass. This produced a very pretty effect and has been the delight of successive generations of children. The blue panes, when looked through, gave a wintry appearance to the scene. The green spring, the yellow summer with glowing sunshine and the purple panes autumn. It was a most appealing setting, as was made plain by the description in a family letter from 1755. After visiting the manufactory of John Taylor, the famed Birmingham Button King, the writer and his companions then walked to Lloyd's... ..country seat, about two miles from the town, which he called his farm. 
It consists of a large genteel house and gardens, stables and outhouses, which are mostly new buildings, very neat and convenient. Before the front of the house is a long spacious lawn, planted on each side with rows of elms leading to the road. The dairy and other branches relating to the farm lay at some distance from the house, which renders it more cleanly and agreeable. After drinking tea, we returned and spent the evening at the Castle Club, over a half pint and cheat. Samson Lloyd II had one son by his first marriage, Samson Lloyd III. He and his descendants lived at the farm. But from the 1850s, the Lloyds developed around it a district of good quality housing for the middle class. As for the Lloyds, members of the family continued to play an active role in what became Lloyds Bank after 1852. Some of them went on to leave the Society of Friends and became members of the Church of England. And it was Samuel Lloyd III who paid for the building of Christchurch in the middle of Birmingham, now gone but recalled by Christchurch Passage close to the council house. Then, in the 1920s, the family gave the farm and what was left of its land to the city. That's the park where I am now. This is still like a rural retreat in the midst of bustling Birmingham. There's greenery, there's trees, there's birds singing, there's houses all around, and you can hear in the distance the noise of traffic. And just a mile or so up the road is Birmingham city centre. But if you sit peacefully, perhaps you can even now hark back to when once Sparkbrook was a rural outskirt of Birmingham. Carl Chin's Birmingham is a History West Midlands production. For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com. .com. <laughs> <laughs>